A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of this ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. A few years ago, I wound up reading a book that had been recommended to me, and the heart of the book was the idea that that most of our history and most of our lives are not shaped by these big events that we think are what shape them, but they're almost always small things done over and over and over again that over time we look back at and we see uh, that's what really changed things in my life. It's these little things done at the right moment in the right way that in the moment you don't even know the impact it's going to have, but over time it becomes this thing. The title of the book was Tipping Point, and it pointed back to these monumental kind of things that happen in the life. It's the kind of thing that you notice in relationships, and often you see it on the outside, particularly if you're a parent with a kid, and you, you look at something going on in somebody's relationship, and you can say, that's going to be a problem, and you try to help a person, you go, oh, that's going to be a problem, and maybe the person, even themselves, can look at the other person they're in a relationship and go, oh, that's going to be a problem at some point, but eventually, it becomes a problem, and they go, well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the same thing. It wasn't a new thing. It was just this same thing done again and again and again, and finally, it became the tipping point that changes everything. And it's not just that way in relationships. It's that way in our lives. I've said to people all along, when they say, you know, what's the moment that you know you know, that God's spoken to you, and the truth is for me, I almost always know defining moments with me and God, that's what I call them, defining moments. I look at them and see them much better in retrospect than I do when they're happening. It's almost always easier for me to, to look at it a year down the road or uh, five years down the road and go, that was a moment, and I didn't even notice it at the time always. It's the kind of thing where I sit in a meeting or something and somebody will say, I, it's the moment where I had a moment of clarity and everything began to change, or I finally hit my bottom, or I recognized that this is as bad as I wanted to get, and I, I came to my senses, and everything began to change. It happens in our world. I think about in my life, m many of you who know me know I love history, and I read a lot about history, that uh, one of the big changes in my lifetime has started really before um, I even was born, four years before I was born in 1955, not too long not too far from here, a, a young Jesus follower decided that that was the day for her, that she couldn't do it again. And when she was asked to stand up and give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, she said, I'm, I'm not going to. And when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, by the way, she wasn't the first African-American lady to not stand up. 
It wasn't her that had done it. Others had done it along the way. But at that moment, she didn't know it at the time. But when they sent her to jail, as a Jesus follower, she realized jail was a perfectly fine place to be when you go in the name of Jesus. Because no ultimate harm can come to you in that place. And that moment became a tipping point because at that moment she had contact with a young pastor who was in the area at that time and he had no desire other than just to be a pastor of his church. But her defining moment became his defining moment as Martin Luther King became the movement leader for this thing. And over time, their defining moment became a defining moment for our country. And when she died at 93 a few years ago, she became the first woman to lay in the rotunda of the of the capital of our, of our country. And 36,000 people stood in line to pass before the casket of Rosa Parks to honor her for a defining moment for our country in the way that we treated each other. But at the moment, she was just doing what she felt compelled to do, and she wasn't the first. It just is a little thing done at the right time and the right way. It begins to change everything in your life. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the teachers here at Community Christian Church. We've been looking at a New Testament book in the Bible called Ephesians. It's really, we say a book, but it's really just a little letter that a guy named Paul writes from prison to a church that he helped start, and he's trying to give them the way that they ought to live. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this tremendous way he describes who we are. When I did the introduction to this book with you a few weeks ago, I said that Paul wants to lay out for us who we are in Christ, and that idea of being in Christ is going to be really key, that he wants you to understand who you are in Christ, and that when you know who you are, then you'll know what to do. Once you know who you are, and you get that really clear in your mind, you'll know what to do, that you've been chosen, you've been saved by grace, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that You've been called to the good work that we together, and if you remember last week, we, we re, re, redefined that it's not a you that he's talking to, it's all y'all. It's all of us together that we've been called into his body, the church, and that we're to represent him as all the walls break down. And diversity becomes not just our pattern, it's not something we want for. Unity is what we want, and so the differences we have ideologically and the way that we look and the way that we think, they go away because in Christ we learn together how high and wide and deep is the love of God, and we represent to a watching world the love that God has for them when we do it right, because when we know who we are, well, then we know what to do. And you can't expect to finally have that kind of experience with God where you were called and chosen and sealed with His Spirit. And expect that all of that can somehow happen to you and you understand it and it not change you. What he describes in the first three chapters is new life. Old life is gone. New life has come. And when we become a follower of Christ, when we begin to follow Him, our identity in Christ begins to change the way we think about ourselves. And we cannot live the way that we used to live. It changes how we love, and it changes how we talk, and it changes how we interact with each other. It changes how we give. It changes how we see the world and how confident we are. So that when somebody's baptized, we literally here try to always use the picture that Paul uses in Romans where we say, when you come into the water of baptism, you're literally going into a grave. You're taking the old self that was you and you're putting it underwater and you rise to walk a new life. 
But don't let anybody fool you into thinking that when you pop up from the water, that everything in you changes then. Everything about you inside begins to change. But the change is something that we work out together. Our new identity begins to translate into new living. And so after this long opening section that's three chapters, and Paul begins this transition, and he starts in chapter 4 again with that famous word, therefore. In, in other words, in light of the fact that you've been called and chosen and sealed, and that you're part of the body of Christ, and all y'all together represent God. This word becomes a hinge for the rest of this book, so he can describe to them what it looks like to live in Christ. What does that look like? And so... Today, I want to do an introduction for this kind and give you the transitioning of this study of where we're going to go for the next few weeks, and it starts right here with these words. Therefore, Paul says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. I beg you to live a life worthy of your identity because you've been identified by God. And the word I want you to draw your attention to in this verse, it's the word beg. Can, can you hear Paul from prison talking to people he loves? And he's saying, I implore you. I beg you. Don't let the things that we've talked about in these first three chapters just become things that have become your personal identity or even what the identity that all y'all together have. This has to be a defining moment. This becomes the tipping point. This becomes the moment of clarity that you begin to say, Hey, Paul just wants you to know, I'm begging you, if you follow Jesus and you have identity in Christ, then you need to begin to live like Jesus. If you're going to identify as Christ, if you're going to follow Him, then you need to live that way. Now, again, I want to be clear, you don't hear me say you're going to do it perfectly because you aren't. There aren't any perfect people that get this right, but you ought to be getting it more perfectly as you follow the longer you go. You won't be perfect, but as you follow Christ more and more, Paul says, I beg you, I implore you to live the way that your calling demands. I think the word I would use is another one that's in the, the lexicon that comes that you could choose for that word. It's not beg, it, it'd be the word summon. I think for our generation, I'd want to say to you, I summon you. I call you into court and ask you, can you give a defense that you actually, is there enough evidence that you actually follow Jesus? I mean, would somebody look at you and be able to say, hey, that's what a follower of Jesus looks like. That's what Paul's saying here. I beg, another way that word could be translated is I summon you, I call you before the court. Can you give evidence that this is true of you? And so what Paul's going to give next is some practical kind of instructions or evidence that you ought to be able to begin to see in your life. And before I read this next verse to you, I just want to say to you is, I really think this is something that we need. We as a community need, but you need to hear me say, this is something I desperately need. This is very challenging to me as an individual. And those of you who know me will know why as soon as I read it. It says in Ephesians 4.2, Always be humble and gentle. Feels like to me Paul should have just end that verse by saying, I'm talking to you, Ed. Always be gentle. Always be humble. 
Now, do you know what word in that really gets in my craw? It's the word always. Because always turns it from the way it's a good suggestion to, oh, now we got a command. And I don't do too well with commands. Now we've gone from, oh, this would be a good thing to do, to this is what you have to do. And I get that it's a good idea to be humble and gentle, but always? I mean, I get it's generally a good thing to do. I mean, I can be humble and gentle with, like, my granddaughters. You should see me with my granddaughters. I am incredibly gentle with my granddaughters. But at 5 p.m. on Lower Fayetteville when I'm trying to go home... <laughs> Not so easy to be humble and gentle. Not so easy when I get into a discussion that I didn't even intend to get into and somebody begins to tell me how it doesn't matter that ethics get involved with our politics. You can just vote for somebody no matter how much a crook they are. And that that shouldn't impact anything at all. Humble and gentle in that conversation? Uh, It's difficult for me. Now, let's take it off me for a second. And let's talk about all y'all about all of us. What if somebody in our country that has watched Christians over the last 20 years, watched the church, if somebody is not a Christian, they're not a Christian because they're more and more in our country. What if somebody who was not a Christian in our country and you, they looked at Christians who post all the scriptures and all the thing of I'm going to church today and then they looked at our comments on social media when we have to defend Jesus because apparently he can't do that on his own and where we condemn other people who disagree with us. If they looked at the way that Christians treat other people who aren't like them, would they say, you know how I know somebody's a Christian? They're always so humble and gentle. Is that the way you think that people would describe us who don't follow Jesus? I mean, do you think just naturally in the United States of America that when somebody sees a person who's humble and gentle, they go, they must follow Jesus. Because look how humble and gentle he is. And again, remember, I said this is, this is hard for me. I mean, I, I know why it's hard for me to be humble and gentle, because I'm just right most of the time. <laughs> I mean, I mean... And I have the truth, and I know what's right, and and people are just wrong. And it's hard to be humble when people are wrong, and you have the truth. I mean, I'm right. So, So here's the question that you and I... This is what I have to deal with. This is what all y'all Christians, we all have to deal with. Is the best evidence we've been giving our country that for 40 years we've been right because we've been right the whole time and they've been leaving us behind? Is that the best evidence we can give that we're just right? Or is the most compelling evidence for Christianity that we become humble and gentle like we've been commanded to be? Always humble and gentle. What if in a divided world, and by the way, Paul's in prison because they're so divided. What if in a divided world, the best evidence for compelling Christianity is that the truth you speak, you learn how to speak it humbly and gently. And before we pass on this too quickly, because, well, I need it. 
I'm going to pause and I'm going to allow God to talk to us a little bit about this. And I've asked Jason to come and help us reflect and to lead us in prayer. So like Ed said, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we've been called to live a different kind of life. We've been called to live in the middle of a world just like Jesus would live if he were in our world, if he were us, in a world that has outrage as a characteristic, political division, where we're all about canceling other people out, cutting people out of our lives, and treating each other with disrespect when they're not like us, or they differ from us, or their opinions are wrong. But as believers, we've been called to be in a world like that, humble, gentle, patient, and forgiving. So, like I said, before we go any further, we're just going to stop for a moment, and we're just going to ask the Spirit of God, who is within us, to speak to us about the ways that we're failing to live up to that standard. So if you feel comfortable doing so, I'm going to invite you. We're going to read some scripture together, and as is our custom around here, I'm going to begin reading, and if you would like to join in, you can just read out loud with me the words that you see in bold. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So I want to give you just a few seconds for all of us to ask God to reveal to us what ways or with what people or in what circumstances have we failed to live up to that calling that we just read together. Maybe just think through your past week. And as you do, ask God, God, will you show me any thoughts, show me any words, show me some actions that maybe I participated in that did not honor you or other people in the way that this verse teaches. You take a few moments and let's do that. Now let's continue and let's read these words of Jesus together. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said the most compelling evidence that you and I are his followers is how well do we love other people in the same way that he has loved us. So in these next few moments, I want you to invite God to show you what is a step that you need to take to live up to this calling, to love others in this humble, gentle, patient manner that Jesus set forth for us. Maybe as you reflect, God's going to lead you to change a, a, a pattern of behavior, maybe just a pattern of speech, how you talk. Maybe he's going to lead you to forgive someone that has wronged you. Maybe he's going to lead you to go to someone that you have wronged and ask for forgiveness. Whatever it is, let's invite him to speak to us now.
Our Heavenly Father, will you teach us to love the way you do? Will you show us what it means to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient with everyone? Father, we need your strength in order to do it. May our lives be the most compelling evidence that your kingdom is here in this world and this new way of life is possible. Let your will be done in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this next part, I want to say again, I want to try to say this as gently as I can, but I want to be really intentional about this first statement. And I, I need this as much as anybody. So I'll just say to all of you who know me closely, you can hold me to this. If you find yourself speaking the truth of Jesus, but you aren't doing it in the spirit of Jesus, will you please shut up? And what you should begin to do is pray that God will send somebody who can say the truth you know in the way that Jesus would say it. But you're not helping. You're not. It's not just about being right. It's about being humble and gentle. Last Friday, I had written this message already and. I wound up going to a seminar that was the primary person there to speak was a guy named Crawford Loritz. And Pastor Loritz has been a, he was a pastor in uh, Atlanta for 15 years. He's retired now. And he'd been asked to come and speak about leadership. But when he stand up, he said, I don't really want to speak about leader, leadership. He's an African-American pastor, just really powerful. He said, I want, to, I want to speak about the character of leaders. And when he got done with everything he said, which was really compelling, he was give us a question and answer. And one of the people in the crowd, a younger guy, said to him, Hey, Pastor Loritz, in a world like ours where everybody's divided over politics and over race and over what the government's doing, what do you think, how does the church stand in that? And he started to say something, and then he stopped, and he paused for a minute, and he said, well, first of all, I just want to say that I think the church has said too much. He said, we've been talking a whole lot for a whole long time, but we have not been living in a way that anybody would be compelled by what we've been saying. So maybe we should be quiet, and we ought to live the way we should live. And then maybe somebody will want to hear what we have to say. And I thought, he sounds a lot like Paul. You should be humble and gentle. You already heard the next verse of this is be patient with each other. And I love this particular translation it says, making allowance for one another's differences because of your love. Isn't that the verse for our generation? That we would begin to make allowance for each other and where we disagree with each other, and that the evidence of your patience. In fact, I read one commentator as I was preparing for this, and I love the way he described patience. He said, Patience is a space that you intentionally leave in your life for people you know you disagree with. That you intentionally put space in your life for people you know you'll disagree with. If you were here last week, you heard. Jason, I mean, uh, Nathan, say to us, have you ever tried to love anybody? I know you love people, 
But have you ever tried to do it? Because it's hard when you have to try. But the evidence of our love is that occasionally I have to try to love an enemy. I have to try in the name of Jesus to allow space for people who are different from me. And in a community where diversity is going to exist and where people of different opinions can exist, where all the walls can be broken down, we're going to have to make allowances and make allowance for people that are different than us and think differently for us. It's hard to believe in our generation where everybody believes that acceptance means that I also agree with you on everything and that if I don't agree with you on everything, I can't accept you. But you might not know this, but in the name of Jesus, we can accept people, we can love people, and we don't have to agree with them. I'm going to say that again because y'all don't seem to understand it. You can love somebody completely, fully, and disagree with them on almost everything. You can love somebody completely and fully and not affirm everything they do with their life. Now, I have found that for some people, if you don't affirm them, they may not agree with your acceptance. They may not think you accepted them. But what they think about your acceptance does not mean you didn't love them. You can love somebody and fully, completely accept them. If you jump down to verse 17, Paul's going to specifically talk to us about what needs to happen to live in this alignment with our identity. Typically, when you think about getting your life in line with, I've been called, I've been chosen, I'm a part of a new community, most of us begin to look at what's happening on the outside, and even other people might occasionally say, hey man, you need to, you need to change the way you do that. And I look at myself and I say, hey, I do want to be more gentle, I do want to be more humble. Other people say, I, I want to be humble. And the way we typically approach that in the church is we approach it with behavior modification. Like I'm going to, that the way I change, the way I become more gentle is I got to, I got to try really hard. I got to work really hard at stopping this behavior. If there's something going on with me and I'm, I'm doing wrong things, I've got to just stop it. Just don't do it anymore. Well, you may not realize this because the church has used that model on people so often. And when that's the model you use, you know how we motivate people in that? Guilt and shame. You make people feel bad for their behavior. You pile on the guilt and shame. And you know what guilt and shame does to people? It generally pours them back into the behavior they already feel bad about. But the Bible doesn't use that method. The Apostle Paul doesn't point to that method. Because those weapons of guilt and shame, long term, they do not work for dealing with an addiction or dealing with a behavior you need to change or dealing with things that you say that you don't want to say, there is another way. The Bible would teach that you do that by surrendering your thoughts, not your behavior. You surrender your thoughts to the Holy Spirit. And you begin to get real intentional about what you think and how you think about yourself and what's going on in your mind. The Bible would say, and says it consistently, Old Testament to New Testament, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. Jesus would say that what comes out of a man flows out of his heart. It's what's inside of us that begins to change. Paul says in these verses, verse 17, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do 
in the futility, not of their behavior, in the futility of their thinking. He says, I insist on this. You don't live the way that other people live who don't follow Jesus. You don't do that. And we often miss that Paul says the way you begin to change and not live like everybody in the culture lives is you can't just muscle up and stop living that way. The way they live is caused by futile thinking. And that has to change. What is futile thinking? Imagine this familiar scene. You come home and have no real plans for the night. So you sit on the couch, turn on the TV, and start flipping through your options. You've got a world of entertainment at your fingertips. On Netflix alone, there are thousands of movies and shows, and there are dozens of other apps with more to watch. So you flip through your phone looking for something, and eventually you say, there's nothing to watch. This is an example of futile thinking. You're flipping through all kinds of possible entertainment, and yet nothing that seems purposeful or meaningful. Futility of thinking is an emptiness that comes not because there is a lack of something, but because there is an excess of nothing. Does that not describe our world? We have all kinds of things to think about, all kinds of entertainment, all kinds of information, more access than humans have ever had. We have more chances to do things and make a difference than ever before. And yet, the real problem is the excess of nothing. All of this stuff, and it just, doesn't seem to offer anything of value. There was this TED Talk on screen time that basically said the challenge in our modern world is that the more external input you receive, the less internal reflection takes place. Meaning with all of this content we take in, we have more things to think about, but less time to think about them. The more you consume, the less you reflect. So when is the last time you just stopped and thought, do I like who I am? Who am I really becoming? When's the last time you just laid awake in bed and you just thought about your day and the interactions you had? You just thought about, where was I humble and gentle today? Was I patient? When is the last time you did that? Because I think for many of us, there's not a lot of internal reflection. We just constantly reach for a screen and consume more content. We get lots more to think about, but we don't reflect and think on it. This is our futility of thinking. And so Paul says about a people like this, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This is futile thinking, constantly seeking things to entertain, inform, and now to outrage us. It leads to darkened understanding. We have more information, but not more understanding. It's like we're blind. Like the more light we have received, it has actually blinded us which is why sometimes we miss the most obvious things in our lives. It's futility of thinking. But it doesn't just dull our thinking. Paul says our hearts become hardened, and it doesn't happen all at once. But over time, our hearts become calloused. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. Our darkened minds and hardened hearts get so messed up that eventually your behavior will naturally follow. And without you knowing it, that's the key to the whole thing. It happens without you being aware of it. Your heart gets hard and all that's left is desire. And eventually those desires turn in on you and consume you and you become something you never intended to be, but you don't know how to change.
So as we come to the end of this particular introduction, when I started this series, I want to go back to where I started. When you get really clear about who you are, and you've been called and chosen, that's the roadmap to how you know what to do. Because when you know what you should be in your mind, when you understand who you are, it becomes a defining moment, the tipping point for what you do with your life. Paul's really clear about this. All these sins of the flesh, when we talk about them, this outward sensuality that you talked about there, and greed, and when it normally gets talked about in settings like this, we think about, I've got to fix a certain behavior, and that's what we focus on. We focus on our behavior. I mean, we focus on other people's behavior. But Paul's really clear. You want to begin to change behavior that's not the right way in line with who you are in Christ? He says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put it off, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new, here it is, in the attitude of your minds, and the way you think. Be made new in how you think, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And what he's doing for you is just being real clear. What we need to think about is there is a corrupt, futile way of thinking in your head. There's ways you talk to yourself about what's happening around you and the narrative that you see in the world and in yourself and in your marriage and with your kids. There's futile thinking that just comes from the narrative that goes on in life. And then there's thinking that comes from being in Christ. There's futile thinking, and there's thinking in Christ. And so what I want to do as I end this thing this morning is, instead of focusing on the output of your life, what I want to challenge you to do is the application for this, and as we go through this the next few weeks, is I want you to begin to focus on the input of your life. I want you to begin to think about what you are consistently taking in. For the next few weeks as we walk through this together, I want you to begin to think about what am I consciously letting into my life all the time because inevitably what comes into your life inevitably is coming out of your life. It's a law. Jesus says what flows out of you came out of your heart even if you say you didn't mean it. Whatever comes out of you flows straight out of your heart. But eventually, it started by going into you, and you have to watch your input. As I, I, I've thought about where I've been over the, this humble and gentle thing for years around here, we would take these spiritual growth profiles, and we'd have other people give us input on where you are on the fruit of the Spirit. Inevitably, I was not good on gentleness. Inevitably, people would say, you're, you're just so direct. Can you figure out how not to be? You just need to work on gentleness. And I agree. And over the years, I've met lots of men and women that are told by their spouses and by their children, hey, you're, you're not very gentle. It's not that I don't think you're right. You're just not very gentle, and I can't hear it. But the problem is not so much what you're doing on the outside. It's the input and the narrative you're telling yourself on the input side. I was talking not too long ago with a young man who was saying the same thing to me about his wife, and he, he said, I want to change. I want to react different, but I'm just... She says, I'm so harsh in the way I talk. And as we began to talk, I said to him eventually, you know, if you continue to listen to angry newscasters and podcasters all the time who are screaming at you about how the world is a dangerous place to be, is it any wonder that you scream at people? If you listen to people that are angry about what's happening in the world and the only way they talk is aggressively, 
Is it any surprise that the only way you talk is aggressively? I know lots of people, this comes more and more in our days over the last three years, and people go, I want to live in faith, not fear, but I find myself afraid all the time. I wind up being afraid all the time, and they have these little things, faith, not fear, and faith, not fear. You want to know how you live in faith, not fear? You stop living, listening to people that tell you you live in a dangerous world, not a world designed by God that is perfectly designed for you and that no ultimate harm can come to the follower of Jesus. You stop listening to people that say, hey, you need to be careful. You, everywhere you go is dangerous and everybody's out to get you and they're going to replace you and we're going to lose our country and everything's coming at you. If you hear that enough, no wonder you're afraid all the time. You must change your input if you want something different. People want to be more generous and grateful and not live in greed. But your most often app is Amazon. If you're constantly looking at what you have and listening to ads about what you don't have and listening to people that tell you the largest problem in our country is that we don't have enough, when everybody in this country has more than 95% of the rest of the world. You're listening to a lie and no wonder you're greedy. No wonder you live with discontentment. You say, I want to be holy and I, I don't want to struggle with lust. I remember talking to people about Solomon. Solomon had a thousand wives and we think in our day, man, couldn't you be satisfied with 990 to have sex with? We see more images of people in different states of making love with each other in all kinds of... We see more sexual images in a week than Solomon saw in his life. And if you continue to have that input, you will not change the output except by faking and becoming a hypocrite. If you want to be different, you must change your input. And so the challenge is, focus on what you're taking in. Maybe for just this week, if you started your day instead of scrolling on line or listening to the news, what if you decided to do something that is true of your life, not what's happening somewhere where crime's taking place, but not in you, and you started with, I'm going to just write down things I'm personally grateful for. I'm going to make a list of things that are true about me that I'm truly grateful for. When I was struggling to try to get my life in line with, particularly with anger, the guy that was coaching me said, hey, let's do this gratitude journal. And you start talking about things you're grateful for instead of all the problems you see around the world. And I was so bad at it. He said, okay, just ABC, it. just do ABCs. And I said, what do you mean? He said, just write down ABC and write one word out beside each letter that you're, that you're thankful for. And so for months, I would just start with apples. <laughs> now, admittedly, every day when you got to Z, it was Xerox or x-rays. I didn't have anything else. But my life began to change because what I realized over time is in spite of what everybody was telling me about my world, I'm a blessed person. My life is incredibly blessed. and has been every day of my life. And every day I get to wake up and be on God's planet doing His work is a great thing and it'll change your life. What would it look like if instead of just turning on 
whatever you have in your ears, you decided to this week on Spotify or whatever you look on, listen to worship music, even if you don't like worship music, but you just let the words about God begin to soak into your life. What if at the end of the day, you decided instead of reflecting on what everything I've heard that's wrong today, you begin to think about what did I do today? Was I patient with people today? Was I loving to people today? Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to be as I grow up? And so that's a challenge for you. Focus on your input and reflect on what's happening in your life because those things are connected. We're transformed by renewing our minds. And I know for some of you this is hard. In fact, listening to me talk about it has been hard for you because your whole time you've been thinking about, well, there are ball games this afternoon. I hope he's done in just a little bit. Some of you online who are watching, you've been cooking the whole time and you're sort of watching, but you're also thinking about when's it going to be on. And, and in the back of your head, other things are running. You know why? Because we filled ourselves with futility of thinking and just the way our world works and we can't even focus for a little time on things we want to focus on. The Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, as a woman thinks in his heart, her heart, it's the kind of person you'll be. You need to start telling yourself the truth. And some of you are thinking, well, it's not going to change for me. I just, I screw it up every time. I'm destined to fall. That is not the truth. The Bible says that when you're weak, he's strong. You just have to come to him. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, I've been a failure my whole life and it ends in defeat. But Paul says in Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And remember, you don't have to do this alone. All y'all been brought into the family. And we get to do it together. We're a spiritual community and we want to be relational input for you. They can be the ones to bring you back to Jesus and get your thinking back on track and help you to develop habits and rhythms in life where you allow Jesus to be the primary input in your life. So would you consider going to next steps today if you're new around here and let us help you Take the next right step. And if you've been around here a while and you sort of got out of step, maybe you, you don't serve anymore, you're not, you're not in a group anymore, would you help us, let us help you get back in, in touch with that? I hope you'll do that. But I want to end by bringing you to the place that reminds us that all of us together, we've been invited into this family called the Church of the Body of Christ. And we end by taking the family meal together. So Jason's going to come and lead us around the table and all y'all are invited.